0: Welcome to MTVA Unscripted, Jeff Hogan, joined today by Lisa Trumbull, Drs. John Rodas and Steve Schutzer, and our guest, Dr. James Caillouet. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jamie. Looking forward to having a spirited and sporty conversation.
1: Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the
0: invitation. So uh, just to get us started, could you just give us perhaps a little bit of your background and experience? Uh, It's extensive and I'm sure our audience would be really interested in hearing what you've done and what you're most interested
1: in. Sure. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon by training. I practiced for 35 years. I just recently retired from surgical practice end of uh, 2022. During my career, I had an opportunity to be involved, not just in clinical practice in private practice. I'm old enough to be one of those guys that started by hanging out a shingle by himself and over time built a large orthopedic group in Southern California. We had our first joint venture surgery center back in the late 1980s with our community hospital. We decided to do this as a joint venture as opposed to owning it 100% ourselves because I I firmly believe that long-term, that would be a better model. And it was the first joint venture for the hospital also at that time. And that grew over time. And in 2006, we had doubled the size of our surgery center. And then I went to the hospital again and started talking to the board about doing an orthopedic specialty hospital as a joint venture. And ultimately, we opened Hogue Orthopedic Institute in late 2010 just before the affordable care act restriction kicked in to no longer allow physician ownership of hospitals and that the thesis behind whole orthopedic institute really was to create an institution with shared ownership and shared governance equal on um, both as a way to maximize alignment between the hospital and the physicians and to really minimize the friction because Southern California is an extremely competitive environment. We are the birthplace of the HMO and the birthplace of capitation. And we had the dominant force in Kaiser Permanente. So there were a lot of different macroeconomic factors that really moved us in that direction. And since that time, the Hogue Orthopedic Institute has grown. At the time that I retired, as I was the chairman of the board. When I retired, and we were a combination of our 70 bed inpatient hospital and six ASCs doing about 25,000, 26,000 procedures a year at that point. I now am involved with Hogue, sort of the mothership, and we have a new innovative physician platform where we're essentially taking a lot of the learnings from the Hogue Orthopedic Institute experience, and now we're taking them into different institutes across the whole enterprise.
0: Having been in healthcare for over 38 years at this point, it's become very depressing at the lack of change and innovation and what have you, but suddenly I have some hope for change. So some things that are happening out there in the healthcare marketplace right now, the passage in 2021 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act basically requires that employer fiduciary create accountability for the contracting for health Services this is a brave new world. Most have no idea what anything costs or what the quality should look like and how exactly they should finance their plan. So it's creating quite a bit of activity in the marketplace. We also see CMMI and CMS saying that in the next five years that Medicare beneficiaries will be serviced by providers taking full risk so we're we're suddenly seeing a move to focus uh, specifically on providers and pulse systems and often capitation supply side on a budget servicing the needs of beneficiaries and so my question very very specifically it looks like you've been in the middle of this for some time from a physician's point of view how do physicians like you basically maintain agency over the practice of medicine without having health systems and others inhibiting that and dictating RVUs and other things that drag us back into the ancien regime of healthcare. So big question I know, and really interested in your thoughts.
1: Well, that is a big question. And I think that the key for me and for all of us in, in our institution the key strategically was to always be thinking long term and looking at the macro environment and the economic forces that were driving it. You know, I did my first outpatient hip replacement in 2006. And at the time, I was really going out on a limb doing that. But we had enough experience at that point in our surgery center to be able to understand what the difference in cost for care delivery was for a relatively standard procedure like hip replacement or knee replacement. And so very quickly we we developed all of our surgical protocols and recovery protocols and everything else. And then we put together, we didn't call it a bundled payment offering, but it was, we called it a travel program. And we started to advertise this to self-insured employers. And we started to draw patients from Alaska all over the Western United States because we could have a patient and their caregiver fly in, have their surgery, stay for a week at the Four Seasons, which was right near our surgery center, with a nurse visiting every day, fly home, and it would cost their employer $30,000 less than what they were paying in Alaska. So and I I recall very specifically sitting with Kevin Bozick in 2008 at the Academy and talking about this and what we could do in terms of the breakdown of, of surgeon's fee, anesthesia fee, everything else under a single price. And obviously we had to negotiate with all the stakeholders, but it was really no different than a capitation contract. I signed my first Capitated contract in 1990, actually probably 1989. So it was not unfamiliar territory for me. And then we just sort of started to roll forward on that and started to understand how to control all of the risk variables and how to negotiate with the payers in terms of what would be covered and what would not be covered over the either 30-day or 90-day period following the procedure. We along with Kevin, we were part of the first trial program in California, the first pilot program for bundled payment, which I believe was 2010 or 11. And we spent almost two years negotiating that contract with Aetna, Blue Shield, and Cigna in order to ensure that we didn't get destroyed in that contract. And we were very successful in terms of the carve-outs of what we would be responsible for following surgery because they wanted us to be responsible for everything. You know, anytime a complication occurred, we would be on the hook for it. And so that's what took two years. That gave us great preparation for then the bundled payment program with uh, CJR. The problem with these programs like CJR and others has been what I call the ratchet, which is that you know every year they reduce the total amount of payment. And long-term, these programs where you uh, take on full risk will not be successful if a ratchet exists because uh, there's no incentive over time to continue to drive efficiency if you know you won't be rewarded for it. And so I think the future is going to be looking at at how to peg these risk programs without a ratchet. And in fact, if you can do them for below the rate of inflation so that you would actually negotiate a long-term bump, annual bump in your reward, I think that'll be much more successful. Honestly, I, I have to say, I've been pitching this for 20 years and it has yet to gain momentum. So I'm hopeful but also a realist in this.
2: My wife always says patience is a virtue, Jamie. So maybe, uh, and I think you're going to have to come up with a new idiom, by the way, saying out on a limb when you're an orthopedic surgeon probably doesn't have the same <laughs> connotation. As so Jamie, I'm going, yeah. to, I'm going to squeeze two questions into um, one because of what you just said. Obviously there was a lot of discussion just now about cost and payment models. And certainly I appreciate all of that, and you know we are the moving to value alliance, right? So when you think about value, of course, it's cost and quality, and I, and I know you're passionate about this, as am I. So I want to ask you about two parts. One is from a performance improvement, whether lean, six sigma, whichever school I've gone to, all of them I, at this point, for you to maintain a reasonable margin you had to reduce a lot of waste and you had to reduce uh, a lot of uh, variation. So whichever approach you use, you probably did both. And I'm sure as you built your institute, you built that stuff into it. So that's one question about how did you... I know from Steve's experience, how do you convince orthopedic surgeons to use, you know, the right prophylactic antibiotic and not use multiple doses or the right anticoagulant or orthopedic or neurosurgeons not to use too many pedicle screws and effusions and all the variation that I've certainly seen, which drives up costs tremendously. How did you use data to influence the behavior of your folks? And then totally separately, but related, where does patient experience, patient satisfaction safety and quality factor into the culture of Hogue?
1: We used data, and we we were committed that data would be collected for every single case, and that it would be used as an educational tool as opposed to a weapon. And I mean that sincerely. We developed, at the founding of our Hogue Rapidic Institute, the Performance Improvement Committee that would meet monthly, and this committee was open to all, but specifically had every individual or department that was involved in care delivery on every level that meant that the people that were turning over the rooms and cleaning the floors they attended this meeting the dietary people attended this meeting it wasn't just you know the surgeons and the nurses we had everyone there and very quickly everyone was educated on metrics and basic statistics and all of the different elements that are involved in not just data collection, but really understanding what it means and how to change and how to improve. And what was very interesting, part of this data that was collected, obviously, was outcome and patient satisfaction data. And we had a lot of tools that we used to do this, but within, I would say, a year, the the group assembled and typically this was 40 to 50 people on a monthly basis in a room that were looking at the data they became increasingly competitive in terms of driving outcomes they wanted it to be better everybody wanted to see the numbers improve on every single metric and everyone took it personally when they didn't and no one was pointing fingers at anyone else. Instead, what we did was we created an opportunity for different teams to present on a monthly basis on projects that they were doing to drive improvement. And they could be they could be very small things, but the culture was to appreciate the efforts that were being made by every member of the team every single month. And over time, you know, I, I think when we founded it, I, I remember standing up and saying our mantra is value and we are going to focus on all aspects and that includes patient experience. And it's it's not just cost and, you know, all of these things, which are the traditional things, but instead we want to drive from the patient's point of view, what matters from the patient's point of view. And that was, at the time, that was a new, it shouldn't have been, but it was a relatively new concept. But it it really developed a life of its own, this committee, over time. And now it's, it's really the core cultural driver of the institution, I would say, is the Performance Improvement Committee. The physicians each get a very detailed three-page report card on a quarterly basis, and it has all of their data that you would expect all the outcome data complications readmissions it also has all of their cost data it has their patient satisfaction data and then it compares them to all of those in the group and then it also compares to our county data our state data and our national data so <laughs>
0: Jamie, I'm going to interrupt here just quickly because this is so important. How how does that get replicated everywhere? I mean, Steve tells the same story with CJRI when putting physicians in a room and telling them that they're underperforming or not performing and their quality is bad. Dr. Marty McCary in his book, he talks about this same thing, showing physicians, look, you're, you're not cutting it, your complications, your infections, your outcomes are poor. So in this new environment of a competitive health services marketplace, as a position leader, how, how do we replicate that around the country? How do you create that culture?
1: I think you can become quite mercenary with this information in a sense where if you are moving to full risk, it's clear with the data, I mean, we, we, I know what the average cost for one of my total knee patients is and, and it com- how it compares to everyone else in the institution. And so if I'm going to be involved in a full risk contract and guiding this full risk contract, I'm going to pick the top six surgeons with the best data. And they will be offered an opportunity to participate in the contract and nobody else will. And oh. that's just the way it is.
3: Oh. Yeah. That's, oh. just, yeah
1: exactly. that, that's just the way we would do it.
3: Jamie, <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm interested in your experience and your history of leading change in driving business to the outpatient setting because you saw an opportunity for improving cost and quality. When we look at the top spend categories for employers, musculoskeletals right up there, And if if we want to continue on that trajectory of improving cost, quality, and transparency for patients, how do you see the physician-hospital relationship evolving over the next couple of years in order to achieve that objective for better price, transparency, and quality for, for the patients that you serve?
1: Well, clearly, at least at Hogue, I'm very fortunate because our CEO and I have sort of locked arms on this for gosh, 15 plus years. So it's not an issue at our institution that we are aligned and transparent, in part because at the time we we founded HOI, it was an, an experiment and a massive risk for the institution. They were taking their highest volume surgical service, putting it in a different location, and allowing physicians to own essentially half the service. So from a hospital's point of view, that was probably you know, crazy. Fortunately, it worked out very well for all parties, and that allowed us to build trust. Going forward though, I, I think leading this change with employers is not easy because they're not necessarily incentivized to do it. And that became clear to me I went with, who is now our CEO, he was a a COO at the time, to the board of directors meeting for the Pacific Business Group on Health in San Francisco in 2010 and presented, and I had all the data on between all of these, you know, everybody sitting around the table uh, represented all the major employers in California. So hundreds of thousands of lives, millions of lives, actually, that they were that they were uh, contracting for. And we had all the statistics on how many hip and knee replacements were being performed. And I went and presented a bundled payment proposal to them, which no one had really heard of bundled payment at that time, but the potential savings for the people in that room was in the millions, tens of millions annually. Yeah, of course. And no one cared. They didn't care. They, I wonder no if it'd be a different
3: conversation now.
1: No one took me up on, yeah, we let's do a pilot program. I couldn't get anyone to even try a pilot because it was, you know, we're going to have to change our benefit structure and we're going to have to change. So it was too much work for them to do that. And I'm not sure how to overcome that. I really feel it's more likely to... Be successful if we can get a major pair to do this uh, without a ratchet. I don't know if that's possible, but if if you could, I think that's more likely as a way to lead change than it is with the employers, in my experience.
4: Jamie, interesting. And, and as you know, John Rodas was a president of St. Francis for years, and, and I reported to him at CGRI. And for the folks listening, Jamie and I go back 35 years and In many ways, what Jamie did at Hogue was in parallel to what we were doing here in Hartford CGRI on a smaller scale. And the difference is, Jamie, we didn't own it, but we had latitude to build it within the limits of the law under a co-management arrangement. So we took on the fiduciary contractual responsibility as if we did own it. Now, yep. why, why would people behave? Uh, you know, John and Jeff asked that question. And you and I, again, are cut from the same cloth. I remember uh, and for the folks on the call here, Jamie and I were in the same panel, I don't know, with one of Kevin Bozick's meetings. And Jamie puts up a slide about Daniel Pink and the puzzle of motivation. I went, oh no, that's my slide. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I never heard anybody use, he stole my thunder. But <laughs> when I looked at that, Jamie, when I saw that and read the book, Dan Pink's book. That's why these things work, because even the most difficult personality, show them actionable data and give them autonomy, mastery and purpose. And I think you've got their heart and soul and they'll start to to fall into line. Uh, But, you know, everything you say is exactly what we did here. Again, the data has to be actionable. The surgeons have to have input because, you know, we, for example, Jamie, we had a 90 day follow a phone call to every one of our patients. So when a when a surgeon said, hey, I, I had no uh, infections last quarter, well, actually it did. It was treated by Jamie in California. They were on vacation. So yeah. physicians learn to trust the data. It becomes the most powerful tool I think the physician leaders have, but also providing them with the environment that they can regain control, I think that's critically important going forward.
1: I, I absolutely agree, and uh, it's been great joy for me to have you as a as a co-pilot on this on this whole project. <laughs> you know, I think I think many physicians across the country have been trying to do this, and it's, it is really out of trying to advance the state of the art and to improve care. That's it, full stop. I mean, that's all we want to do is is really make the patient better. But we have to employ, as you said, these these drivers spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time throughout my career reading about psychology, sociology, behavioral economics, because if you don't do that, it's very difficult to lead change effectively. And so I think that that's where, you know, where I've personally put a lot of my energy is
2: trying to understand the human drivers of change yeah and i steve and i are big fans of danny kahneman and of course uh, it's been a couple couple of nobel prizes now for behavioral economics so you're you're hit at the nail on the head i mean at the end of the day if you don't understand that you're never going to be able to make meaningful long lasting change jamie steve mentioned that i was the president of the hospital and and, and I'm curious about the impact of the Orthopedic Institute on the rest of the hospital. Besides, obviously, you know, I'm sure you were the, you had a high profit margin and you're, you're a great for them, but we found this incredible uh, spillover effect as you were driving up your quality and safety and patient experience, it spilled over to the rest of the hospital. We could hold mm-hmm. that up. Actually. I used to hold them up as the gold standard say, hey, could they, people would complain you. Why are they getting all the money? Why do guys, I said, Hey, because they got 99% patient satisfaction. If you guys get 99% patient satisfaction, I'll give you the resources too. And guess what? They started to do it. I'm curious, did you see the same impact at your sister hospital?
1: Yes. The short answer is yes. And over time, I mean, the, the physicians at the mothership, initially there was some professional jealousy and why can't we have this and all of those same things. But a rising tide lifts all boats. And I think that we, what we really started to do was to drive change in terms of data collection and, and sharing the data on a frequent basis with the physicians and and all of the others as well. And the other thing that was different about our institution, I mean, we, we were a separately licensed hospital. We had our own board of directors We had our own finance committee, but the CFO for the mothership was the CFO for our hospital. So we had a lot of shared services and shared expertise. And so the physicians learned a lot, I think, and had increasing respect for all of the challenges for a hospital administration. They learned a lot in that regard and vice versa. I think that the the administrators learned a lot about how physicians run their practices and how they run operating rooms and all of those sorts of things. So it was a, a shared learning experience as well.
4: Jamie, I just want to quickly follow up on that. You know, uh, years ago, I heard I prof- was at uh, Professor and Kaplan's course, the course that we went to, John, uh, you probably attended it too. And Bob Kaplan said 10 years ago that sooner or later, all physicians are going to be employed. And I know that that has been sort of the pervasive viewpoint of some academic physicians, academic healthcare leaders, but you did something really, really unique. And that was invite Zeke Manuel, the architect of the ACA to visit your institution. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think there's a, there's a tremendous story embedded in, in that experience.
1: Sure. When we got to go ahead from our board to build Holgoire Orthopedic Institute, which was in 2008... Shortly after that decision by our board, we saw the first draft of the ACA. And the language in the first draft of the ACA specifically excluded physician ownership. And it did so retrospectively, retrospectively. Oh. Yeah. And so the CEO called me into his office and said, Well, I hate to tell you this, but it looks like the game's up. And I said, Well, this is just a draft this hasn't been passed into law yet. And he said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's been drafted by Ezekiel Emanuel and the American hospital association is putting all the money into it. So this is it. And I said, well, why don't we try to change that? (laughs) And so, so we did, we, fortunately we went to Washington DC and what I learned there was very interesting meeting with all of the senators and the congressmen. And you you start off meeting with all of their aides, and their aides were my daughter's age at the time. And they all had the same sheet of paper in front of them. They all had been given the talking points by the AHA, American Hospital Association, as to why physician-owned hospitals were, were terrible, were bad. And after having three or four of these meetings and seeing them pull out the same piece of paper, I was a little bit upset with the last woman that pulled the piece of paper out and said, you're not listening. You're not hearing me. All you're doing is reading from this piece of paper. Turns out that most of the bullet points were taken from the work by Zeke Emanuel. After we opened and we were, you know, we were probably in 2000. Fourteen, but I don't recall exactly, but uh, Zeke visited Hogue uh, Orthopedic and spent a day with us and came in wanting to prove his point and left 180 degrees, completely transformed to the point where he actually wrote op-eds to multiple different uh, publications, including the New York Times and others, and basically said, this is what we need to be doing (laughs) and my point to him was was that the reason we're able to do this is that everybody has skin in the game everybody feels like an owner and you act differently if you own it or you rent it and we're owners and so we have different behavior as owners and we have different standards as owners and and so it's not a bad thing in fact The model that we have benefits our community because part of our model was that we would adopt all of the same community-based purpose as our hospital. And so that we would be caring for, you know, uninsured patients as well as PPO patients. And we would be, you know, we'd be doing all the same sorts of things. So uh, long and story short, Zeke flipped after his experience there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just a, just a quick follow up to that specifically. You pointed out an important thing. It's it's really about, about physicians taking agency, and that was that's been a, a big discussion here in Connecticut, which has been very much fee for service and volume focused uh, for for a long uh, period of time. Putting your futurist hat on, and uh, you are an influencer. You know your your comments have really been very helpful and insightful. Take a look at what's happening around the country with billions of dollars pouring into tech-enabled advanced primary care organizations, uh, basically promising the second coming of Christ uh, that, you know, they'll move into uh, regions and uh, take capitated risk. And for employers who are suddenly being charged as fiduciaries, you must have accountability for your contract, and you must have predictability around cost and quality. It it seems like a, a pretty easy first step to embrace advanced primary care capitation for total cost of care to create that accountability. But most of these, and I am getting to a question, are using integrated practice units, you know, using a physician and APRNs and PharmDs and behaviorists and team approach to, you know, furnishing care and providing outcomes and patient experience and things like this. So, you know, you just described a model where uh, the physician is really at the core of taking agency. How do you foresee, and I know this is a curveball, that's why I threw it in, this movement toward more integrated practice units (coughs) where The physician is doing complex care and coordinating the rest of the care. Just curious, you know, your thoughts about this.
1: Well, I I think that as time goes on, the demand for services will outstrip the supply of physicians. And Mm -hmm. the best way to deal with that is to do exactly what you described, which is to create teams, integrated practice units. And the layering technology on top of that I think will be very effective. I've been doing some work with a brilliant guy, his name is Callum McCray, he is at Brigham. Callum has put together and actually used this at Brigham for several years now, combination of software and humans that manage chronic disease, hypertension, uh, you know, diabetes, others, where they're actually using college students who are trained to, and I'll use the term nudge patients on a frequent basis. And they do it through, you know, they call the patient, they say, Mrs. Jones, have you taken your medicine this week? What are your, you know, what are your blood pressure numbers looking like? And these students turn out to be incredibly effective. These are typically pre-med students or students that are, you know, in psychology or other behavioral health areas. And patient satisfaction is off the charts. Patient utilization of their meds is off the charts as compared to not using this technology. And and so in my opinion, the future really is going to be tech-enabled integrated practice units led by physicians. Because if you can start to layer on all of the you know large language models and, and ai and be able to comb through millions of bits of data and then uh, use that for a specific patient to improve their care through this type of model where a physician doesn't have to be making that phone call but literally a freshman in college can be making that phone call properly trained of course and with the right boundaries et cetera, et cetera. but all of this can be done it just needs some creativity And and so I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I I think that's the the trend that I think we're going in.
3: Yeah. Jamie, just thinking about the model of team-based care and you referred to ratcheting of the payment model for bundles down, making it less effective for providers to be engaged in something like that. And certainly CMMI and CMS have done a lot of work on bundles, bundle payments and advanced payment models and the like. And you know, I call the, the ratcheting the race to the bottom. And it, it basically eliminates the ability to innovate and do better over time and disenfranchises providers and others from participating in uh, those types of payment models. What do you think is the right approach, especially given that you're, you know, you've practiced in a, a specialty where it's really amenable to a type of bundled payment model?
1: So I, I still believe in all of the Benefits of bundle payment in terms of sharing risk amongst all of those who provide care. I think the challenge is exactly what you just stated, which is if you design the program such that you are going to ratchet the reward down over time, you'll extinguish the the drive. And so what would be better would be to peg rate of inflation, and then you'll maintain the arbitrage opportunity for all of those that are providing care. And I think it's really critical to maintain that opportunity. It's up to the providers to actually acquire the arbitrage. They may not. They may not be efficient enough to be able to do it. But if they're if the combination of their outcome data and their patient satisfaction data is such that they maximize the arbitrage, they should be rewarded. And and by rewarding them,
2: you will sustain the model, in my opinion. There's still plenty of ways, to your point, that can be carved out. Plenty of yes. ways that can be carved out of the system, which that's that arbitrage we're alluding to.
1: Well, and, and exactly that is that, uh, you know people are very innovative and creative. And even as time goes on, if the arbitrage remains, they're gonna come up with new ideas.
2: It's just human nature. Right, they will. Right, right. Jamie. So when you were you were talking about Zeke Emanuel's visit. You know, the reason the AHA, of course, didn't want hospital physicians to open hospitals was, was obvious, right? Because if Steve and I, if somebody gave us half a billion dollars, I I'm pretty sure Steve and I could actually open a kick-ass orthopedic hospital. I, I really and I know that sounds yeah, yeah. I'm there not, like I'm not very humble, but you heard Steve, it here first. With yeah. Steve, I could do it. But, the rhythm, right? but what that what the result of that is I would be sucking out from a lot of the community hospitals in the marketplace, a relatively high margin part of their business. And you know that hospitals run at a zero, 2% if they're profitable at all margin. And, and now, what the effect is that hospitals are going to start closing or scaling back services, and it kind of becomes this death spiral. So, I guess the question looking forward now is are specialty hospitals in cardiology and cancer and orthopedics? the answer or is the partnership with an existing hospital as you started out better again thinking about because you're not going to open a hospital that's going to provide care to the emergency departments and OBGN services that are high risk and low margin you know what's the balance there
1: first of all i feel strongly that uh, they do need to be a partnership between the community hospital and the physicians i do not support 100 owned physician hospitals in communities, because I do think that's where you run into the problem. So that's number one. Number two, I firmly believe, based on our experience, that in certain specialties, having an effective specialty hospital, whether it's in women's health, cardiac services, oncology, you know, the big five, if you do that, patients will get better care. I fundamentally believe it because you have nursing staff only taking care of you know, cardiac issues or whatever it is. So I, I believe in that model. And in fact, Hogue right now is in construction in Irvine on our, our second campus, billion dollar project right now. And it is a series of specialty hospitals. They are building next to Hogue Orthopedic Institute a women's hospital. cancer hospital you know so essentially they they took the model and rather than build a second traditional power that has everything in it it's a village of small specialty hospitals instead love it love
4: it yeah let me say you're you're on
1: mute sorry
4: they're giant ipus aren't they
1: yeah that's essentially what they are because i really believe You do provide better care in that setting because everybody is specialized. They get better and better at what they do.
2: You can have shared services for food and environment and some of the other things. uh, Yes, you. You have
1: shared services. You have you know shared imaging, shared lab, shared IT systems, all of that. But uh, when it comes to direct patient-facing care, those are specialized. Yeah.
3: My yeah, do you do you think a model like that over the long run has workforce implications that worsen the situation for the supportive clinicians that you need to achieve those better outcomes? I'm curious because the conversation today is about the workforce shortage that we're going to face in healthcare, not just for doctors but for nurses and and other clinical staff.
1: That hasn't been our experience to date. I guess if your question is. Will this exacerbate the existing shortage? If that's your question, in the long run, I don't think it will. And the reason I don't is that in the long run, if this model is superior, people will come to that to work. And that's certainly been our experience uh, so far, is that we have people that travel from the inland empire on a daily basis to work at Hogue, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that, and then that's not good necessarily, but they do it because they have a better work environment. And actually this just this past year, um for the second year in a row, Hogue was ranked number one in the US for nurses on where they want to go to work. Um, so I think that even though you know we're not as big as the Mail Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic or whatever, somehow we rank number one in the United States on that. And I think it's because we provide these opportunities for specialization because people want to, you know, you get back to Daniel Pink, they want mastery. And so nurses want to be able to, to get to the top of their education level as well. And and so the more specialized they become, the the more satisfied they are.
0: Earlier and you talked about your efforts on and- bundle payments and episodes of care and what have you. And you mentioned that uh, you know it it would be useful potentially for a big payer to really focus on this and what have you. What we're seeing suddenly with the Consolidated Appropriations Act is that all of the BUCA payers and Walgreens boots out in your area uh, and Amazon out in your area as well are moving to setting up separate corporations that Curate health services. That is, that's the new buzzword out there in the marketplace. And, you know, this is a response to what is happening with the Consolidated Appropriations Act. By the end of this year, every employer has to attest that they've removed gag clauses from their contracts, which effectively means that they're given their data and analytics on their retrospective utilization to show how they've been financing their plans. And we know that most plan fiduciaries, most CFOs have no idea what anything costs should cost or could cost. So they're, they're really in a tough place right now from, from your perspective, it, you know, we're, we're finding that the payers aren't being very cooperative and, you know, helping in this mix. How does an employer, let's go back to the PBGHs and uh, what happened in this new environment where an employer has personal liability for the appropriate procurement of the appropriate health services applicable to their population? How now do they find you and what you describe and others like you? that are providing the right predictable cost and quality for their highest volume of services? I think the onus
1: is on us, quite frankly, to put the numbers and the data out there. I think we need to be the ones to go to the community, to go to the employers, and to say, hey, we've been collecting this data for the last 15 years or whatever, uh, longer. Here's what it is. And it's actually better than all of our competitors. We can look at the, the competitors in our market for specific CPT codes, for specific services, and we can show what our costs are and our outcomes are, and we've used that. So I think, it, I think the onus is on us to be the ones to go out there and adapt to this new environment and to, again, have agency and you know take it to the environment as opposed to being passive and letting letting the environment steamroll you excellent
4: yeah you know jamie there in this conversation today there are just so many lessons some clear some maybe a little nuance that we all can learn from your experience at Hogue and your leadership ability and again we've done that to some extent here in Hartford in a very similar way our our nurse loyalty our team loyalty was despite our competitor offering them all kinds of goodies to come join, never left. I mean, and it, it really speaks to, to culture that you and your team created at Hogue and what we created here. But I want to touch really quickly on the issue of bundling. And we talked about bundling. We also go back to 2009 because I heard that you were doing it with, um, <laughs> I forget the company that was, what was the first uh, COE company Bridge bridge, bridge Health, Bridge Health. Yes,
1: Bridge Health, that's
4: right. Jamie's in the tourism industry. I want to get into tourism. And that really launched our bundle payment program. But ours is only commercial. So we never had a gain-sharing relationship. So we weren't quite as concerned about the the race to the bottom or the plateau effect where there'd be nothing else to share because our methodology was based on TDABC, the cost of each entity doing the work and dividing that risk and reward uh, accordingly. But I think the next horizon for folks like you and I or super specialists are really to move, and I think CMS is doing this from what I'm hearing, in, into more condition-based bundles than just these one-off procedural bundles, that we ought to step up and be the MSK mentors to our primary care colleagues and, and really contribute in that fashion. And that actually may be where the next opportunity is uh, for those of us in, in orthopedics. What do you think?
1: I agree. I think that uh, we will we will need to be able to go to a payer and say we will take all of the MSK risk for the neck for your 250,000 lives in this, you know, portion of this county. We'll take the risk. We know what you've spent in the last year on that, and if we spend the same amount, we break even. If we spend less, We split it with you somehow. And so I I believe that that is potentially the next step in where we're going. But in order to do that successfully, and a lot of, you know, this is where having been in California for a long time, a lot of the early IPAs tried to do that in California and went bankrupt because they didn't have the data analytics capacity. They didn't understand their true costs, all of those things, you need to really know what you're doing in order to do that successfully. But that doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means you need to be respectful of what's involved in doing it. And so the the potential is there, I believe, strongly in that potential. And I believe we should be working to capture that potential.
0: Thank you, Jamie. Jamie, thanks so much for your important work. Thanks for joining us today, uh, for your excellent perspective and insights. And we've really enjoyed the conversation today.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And best of luck to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie.